Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're beginning a brand new series with Dr. Newfeld today called The Crossroad, and it's a continuation in a series on the book of John. The message today is found in John 7, verse 1, called Keeping Jesus from the Cross. I think it's fair to say that Satan and the demons from hell have little objection to anyone who only admires Jesus or only studies Jesus or, depending on the circumstances, they might even make little protestations if someone seeks to follow Jesus. The demons might well tolerate if you consider Jesus a great prophet or even the greatest prophet. They will wince if you proclaim Jesus Lord and God, but they may even put up with that. But one thing invites all the demons of hell into warfare, and it's this, the insistence on placing the cross of Jesus at the center of everything. Liberal Christianity has now for years been presenting a Jesus minus the cross. This is the kind of Christianity that revels in the Sermon on the Mount and the presentation of a radical new ethic, one based on loving one's enemies and not seeking to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Be involved in reconciliation and also in sharing of resources with the needy. That, they say, is the heart of Christianity. And by the way, so that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying, I'm not saying that Christianity, that is the genuine kind, doesn't teach these things. We do seek a pathway of reconciliation. We do seek forgiveness of enemies. We do seek to disabuse people of the notion that they should make it their life's focus to seek earthly treasures. And Jesus was right. We who have more do have an obligation to the poor. And a failure to seek the welfare of the poor is an outcry against God himself. And furthermore, we insist on following Jesus, and we also insist that we must be obedient to his commands. The Jesus ethic is highly prized by all true Christians. And I, for one, don't understand the notion how in some fashion there are those who try to attach the gospel to right-wing politics. And mind you, before you switch me off, I can't understand how anyone would attach the gospel to left-wing politics either. Jesus preached the kingdom of God, not the political structures of men. But let me not get off track. I started by saying that there is a great satanic program underfoot so that even if we feel attracted to Jesus, Satan will do anything to keep that attraction for Jesus away from a suffering and bleeding and dying Savior hanging on a cross as the atoning sacrifice for men and women. Now, yes, Satan might even allow us to have a cross as long as that cross is not about atonement. Satan can affirm a cross in which Jesus loves his enemies or a Jesus who suffers for the things that he believes in. But Satan will fight with fury to keep you from the cross as an atoning sacrifice, a cross that satisfies the wrath of a righteous incensed God and a cross that pays for the sins of all who put their hope in Jesus. If you put your hope fully in what Christ has done for you on his cross, then you will become one like Paul who will say, Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Let me explain, at least in my estimation, four reasons why the cross of Jesus will always be controversial. Number one, the cross properly understood highlights human sin. 
It shows us what God thinks of our sin. And the second reason why the cross will always be offensive is because it testifies that we are unable to save ourselves. We are without resources before a holy God. The cross is humiliating. It it reminds me that I have nothing to offer God. I can only come to him as a beggar looking for bread. And the third reason why the cross is so offensive is that since the cross is required, in that case, Jesus is the only way to the Father. The cross speaks to us of the exclusiveness of Jesus. He is the only Savior. And finally, the reason why the cross is offensive is because it testifies to the holiness of God, his righteousness. See, the cross reminds us that this is what the Father requires as payment for sins. You know, the evil one will do anything just so that in your mind and heart, he can keep you from viewing the entire life of Jesus from the prism of his cross. Satan wants you to keep your Jesus from the cross. And much of the unbelieving world will be comfortable with any view of Jesus, just so it is not the Jesus who hung and bled and died for ruined sinners. Today, I'm beginning a four-week series on John 7 to 11, a series I'm calling The Crossroad. You know, the Gospel of John is unique. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written earlier, and those three books, for lack of a better word, are biographies of the life of Jesus. And they chronicle the key areas of Jesus' life and ministry, and they do highlight the cross. But John writes years later, some 20 years later. And when John writes, Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Roman army and it now lies in ruins, and the center of the global church now is moved from Jerusalem to Ephesus, and and John wrote the book of John from Ephesus. And furthermore, when John writes John, many of those who had witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus, well, they'd now passed away. And a new generation is now leading the church, and this generation had been taught about Jesus, but they had not physically seen him. And so, assuming that his readers are familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John writes from his personal encounter with Jesus, but he concentrates on those events that were first not covered by the other three, but also he writes by challenging a new generation on what it means to truly believe in Jesus and, you know, to truly be a follower of Jesus. And with that in mind, let's very briefly paint a picture of John's gospel. John is 21 chapters long. John 12 to 20, that is nine of the 21 chapters in the book, speak about only one week in Jesus' life. That's Passion Week. That's the week that Jesus was crucified, buried, and then raised from the dead. Then John chapter 21 deals with the post-resurrection ministry, which we might say is the aftermath of the cross. Now then, we're going to be studying John 7 to 11, and those five chapters of John occur during the six months prior to Passion Week. I hope by now you're catching the theme. From chapter 7 to 21, all of that material in John points directly to the cross. Ah, but but then there's chapter 6, and that chapter begins with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And by the time we get to the end of that chapter, we hear Jesus saying that he's the bread of life and that unless his followers are willing to drink his blood and eat his flesh, they're not going to have eternal life. So what was Jesus talking about? Well, yeah, you guessed it. He's talking about the cross and what it means to put one's trust wholly in Christ's sufficient death on our behalf. Well, then that means that John 6 to 21, all of that material, 16 of the 21 chapters of that book has but one focus, the cross of Jesus. 
And here's why. John knows that for a new generation of believers, those who will come to believe, even though they did not personally witness the ministry of Jesus, if they are to truly believe in the real Jesus, that there can be no true faith unless the cross is central. See, the Gospel of John won't let you get away with believing in Jesus if it's not cross-focused. Let that sink in. That brings me back to what I said at the outset. See, the demons of hell will allow you to believe in Jesus, provided it's not a Jesus whose bloody sacrifice on the cross is central. Now, in truth, John's not saying what Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not say before him. And we notice, for instance, in the temptation of Jesus, I mean, right before Jesus began his public ministry, it's recorded in both Matthew 4 and Luke 4, all three temptations are related towards abandoning the focus that Jesus had on going to the cross. Satan said, I'm going to give you the kingdoms of the world. They are have them. All I require of you is that you worship me. You can have riches, you can have global popularity, you can have all the power you want, but you have to have it on my terms and not on the Father's terms. So as we continue to read through the synoptics, we find that what's at stake is that Jesus would resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem to die. He would not be dissuaded. But where the synoptic writers chronicle this progression in the life of Jesus, John, in realization that we just might not get it. Well, John, as it were, takes the gloves off by giving us, in essence, the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen then to Paul's declaration to the Corinthian Christians, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's to say, everything I preached was seen through the prism of the cross. Paul and John and all the New Testament writers knew, you're not talking about the real Jesus unless the cross is central. Connecting God's people to God's Word in our world today is critical. And Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld engages timely issues of life and faith so important for God's people to engage and discuss. Special guests each week examine critical issues that impact our lives and our journey with Jesus. So join us on Truth and Life Today by tuning in on Vision TV every Sunday at 1230 Eastern or subscribe to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, or simply visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And send us an email at info at backtothebible.ca to let us know that you're watching. If you'd like to learn more or share a gift to support the ministry of Truth and Life today, or any of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. There are a few more features in John's Gospel that are highly significant. You know, the Gospel of John is filled with the number seven. There are seven I am sayings in John, everything from I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life. 
seven I am statements made by Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. Did you also know that there are seven discourses in John? The discourse with Nicodemus, the one with the woman at the well, and so on. Seven major teaching sections in this book. But did you also know that there are seven miracles, or what John calls signs, in this book? the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the lame man, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, the healing of the man blind from birth, and then seventh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. What do we make of all those sevens? Is there something else that John is trying to communicate in this book? Why do so many things come up in sevens in this book? Well, it's not by accident. Well, the number seven is, of course, not just found in John. You know, the Bible begins with the seven days of creation. Another example, think about the conquest of Jericho in the book of Joshua. March around the city for seven days and then see God at work fighting for his people. Indeed, it's been pointed out that the number seven comes up over 700 times in the Bible. And you might also remember that when his disciples asked Jesus how often they should forgive someone, Jesus said 70 times seven. And fascinatingly, when we read the book of Revelation, remember this book was also written by John, the number seven comes up well over 50 times. Seven churches, seven angels of the churches, seven spirits before the throne, seven seals are broken, seven trumpets are blown, seven bowls are poured out, and so forth. And so seven in the Bible and in the literature of John is just a frequently used number. So it gives. Well, most Bible teachers agree that the number seven is a symbolic number that communicates divine completeness or perfection or totality. Now, that doesn't mean that the Gospel of John, John is using the number seven to communicate that he's giving us an exhaustive treatment of the life of Jesus. I mean, John doesn't tell us everything that can be said about Jesus. In fact, he says the opposite. I mean, listen to John in the very last verse of the book of John. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. No, no. John doesn't use the number seven to subtly communicate that his book is exhaustive or a complete treatment of the life of Jesus. I think, however, that the use of seven signals the reader that if you're to understand the completeness or the wholeness of the ministry of Jesus, It's got to do with something that the book has got to do with. It's got to do with the cross. After all, that's what this book is about. Look, in John 19, verse 32, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for some time. And then John says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. It is complete. All that I've come to do has now been fulfilled. And so those many sevens in the book of John have been hinting to a completion. Look to the cross, says John. It's there and only there that we find the complete and finished work of Jesus. So if you teach Jesus without constantly pointing back to that one thing, well, you haven't been talking about the real Jesus at all. Keep him from the cross and you've kept yourself from him. Now, as I've said, I'm beginning a new series taken from John 7 to 11. It's a series that we're calling The Crossroad. Chapter 7 begins with Jesus still in Galilee, but as we're going to see, he's about to go to Jerusalem. And from chapter 7 all the way to the end of the book, we don't have any mention of Jesus in Galilee again. 
And if you don't know where Galilee is, it's, it's in the north of Israel. You can kind of draw a line through the center of Israel. The north is Galilee and the south is Judea. And even though Israel is quite a small country, it's amazing how different Galilee is from Judea. Galilee is agricultural and is green and rich. Of course, we know the Sea of Galilee is there. It's really a freshwater lake that at the time of Jesus was known for its abundance of fish. And so whenever you find farmland, you'll also find a smaller population. It's a mostly rural folk. Galilee, at least in the time of Jesus, was sometimes also called Galilee of the Gentiles. And that was because there were a lot of Jews and Gentiles living together in Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus grew up. Galilee is where Jesus spends most of his ministry. It's the part of his ministry that Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend so much time dissecting and discussing. And it's in Galilee where we see Jesus walking on the water and feeding the 5,000 and casting out demons which go into a herd of pigs. It was in Galilee that large crowds followed him, and it was in Galilee where he gained most of his popularity. But when we come to John 7 to 11, that phase of Jesus' ministry is now behind him. He goes to Judea, that part of Israel where Jerusalem is found. And Judea is more mountainous, and it is in places a desert, and that's often called the Judean wilderness. And of course, Jerusalem is in Judea. And Judea was the heart of Israel. It's where Jesus' fiercest opponents lived. Here in Judea, we move from popularity to persecution. They wanted to kill him in Judea. And so John 7 to 11 starts with Jesus going to Judea and ends with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey just in time for Passover, just in time for his appointment with a cross. And John 7 to 11 all happens within a period of six months before that event. You know, in essence, what we have in those five chapters is the last six months before the cross. And here John will show us how and why Jesus was moving to the cross. And it's not as if, you know, if only he had been content to remain in Galilee. No, no. We are to read this as one who is destined for Judea, the territory of suffering. Let's take a little time getting to know these five chapters. As we read through them, what are we going to find? Well, let's start with chapter 7. I've mentioned that there are seven discourses of Jesus in John's gospel, and John 7 contains the fifth of these. This chapter will have Jesus traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. You know, ancient Israel had seven feasts. Well, that's no surprise. But there were three of them that were called the pilgrimage feasts. That's because there was an expectation that Israelite males would make a pilgrimage from wherever they lived and go to Jerusalem to celebrate. And of course, they'd take their families along. Think of it this way. You know, we hear of people going home, you know, for Christmas and for Easter and sometimes for Thanksgiving, that kind of a thing. And we think of certain times of a year as a time when people not only celebrate something significant, but the celebration is supposed to involve others. Well, John 7 begins with one of those three feasts, and it's the Feast of Booths. I'm going to say a lot more of that when we get there. But it will also become clear that Jesus will stir up controversy there. A real attempt was made, as we will see during the Feast of Booths, to kill Jesus there. But Jesus is not going to die at the Feast of Booths. Well, six months after the Feast of Booths is Passover, and we know it was during Passover that Jesus was crucified. We also know that Passover was the festival that celebrated the liberation from Egyptian slavery. The angel of death had 
come to bring justice to Egypt. And he had passed over those who had the blood of a slaughtered lamb over the doorposts of their homes. So when we come to chapter 8, in which John presents us with the sixth discourse, or the sixth teaching, this one is still while at the Feast of Booths. And then we come to chapter 9. It's the healing of the man born blind, and that's the sixth sign in John's Gospel. And then we come to chapter 10, which is the seventh discourse of Jesus, and here are Jesus' famous words that he is the good shepherd, the one who comes to lay down his life for the sheep. And by the end of that chapter, the religious leaders announced that they finally and utterly rejected Jesus. They're not interested in any further dialogue with him. And then we come to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we have the groundwork for the cross. Because chapter 11 contains Jesus' seventh sign. And this one is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus' resurrection prefigures or speaks about the ultimate resurrection from the dead. So, as we read through these five chapters, we're going to see all five chapters written with a dark shadow which is superimposed across these five chapters. It is the shadow of the cross. Nothing will keep Jesus from his appointed hour. So join me as for four weeks we see the real Jesus, as the Jesus who Mark told us in Mark 10:45, who came to give his life as a ransom for many. John, let me ask you, you know, there's a lot of people that are enamored with Jesus, but they make a mistake. Somehow they try to separate the cross from Christ, and you can't do that. No, because then you separate Christ from grace, you separate him from redemption, you separate him from the need to be saved from our sin. So all of these things, and, and by the way, that's happening all the time, Ben. Yes, you thank you for raising that because, you know, there are people who teach, uh, you know, the, the ethic of Jesus. I mean, there are people who teach Jesus constantly from the perspective of the Sermon on the Mount. But even there, I would argue that the Sermon on the Mount, when understood fully, always leads us to the cross. So I'm going to say that most of the errors that people make about Jesus are the Jesus who is uh, separated from the cross and so therefore separated from redemption and our need for him. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our series, The Crossroad, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer, and since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Dot CA.